Welcome to Mint and Burn, the academic analysis of blockchain and other technologies in the decentralized digital economy. I'm your host, Kelsey Nabin, and we are tuning in remotely from the RMIT University Blockchain Innovation Hub to bring you interesting guests, publications, and experts to test frontier ideas. Today, we're talking to identity woman, Kalia Young, on digital identity and blockchain, alongside distinguished professor Jason Potts and Professor Ali Rennie from RMIT. Welcome, everyone. Thanks, Kelsey. Good to be here. Thanks, Kelsey. Yeah, hi. So by ways of introduction, uh, Kalia, I'd love to know how you got involved in the area of digital ID. So I have a fairly unique path in I um, in the in I went to a conference in the year two thousand called Planet Work Global Ecology and Information Technology, and the folks who put that conference on hosted an eighteen month long um, think tank called um, the Link Tank that produced a paper called The Augmented Social Network Building Identity and Trust into the Next Generation Internet. And it made the argument that there was a missing piece of infrastructure needed to really support people connecting better with each other in peer-to-peer ways to make their neighborhoods better and make the planet better. And that missing piece was user-centric digital identity is what it was called at the time. And that crew started meeting and connecting monthly different projects. And I started participating around 2002 at those first meetings. And by 2004, I was working for Identity Commons, which grew out of that, that community. And by 2005, I was hosting the Internet Identity Workshop and my initial involvement was really, I thought they had the identity stuff figured out and I was going to build distributed social networks for social change movements, which I still aspire to have grow out of or be able to be built on the decentralized identity technologies we finally have. But um, it was really an accident that I ended up working in tech and working on this particular problem, but it has been what I've spent the last 16 years doing. That's incredible. And what are some of the kind of foundations or principles of decentralized digital ID that you've either come across from other works or that you've developed in your own kind of expertise? Sure. I think um, one of the things that's important to understand is what's different about this emerging set of technologies than the choices we have widely available today. And a key a key aspect that's different is in today's universe of the digital, we are assigned identifiers by other authorities. And because those, I, those identifiers are ultimately owned by those authorities, they can take them away from us. So examples include our phone numbers. We rent them from phone companies. Even though, you know, I've had my phone number for over 10 years, it is not, quote unquote, mine. I rent it. Um, we have URLs that you also pay for those domain names and rent them effectively. And you have a whole set of private namespaces that we're all fairly familiar with, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn or any other social network. When you you have a handle in those systems, it's ultimately underneath that private namespace and they have control over it. So part of the innovation that these decentralized identifiers that we've worked to develop have is that they're self-certifying, meaning I can generate my own and I can use it and someone else can't take it away from me. Are you able to explain how that works at the technical level, obviously without getting too technical for us? Sure. I mean, um, this is where it helps to go watch some basic videos on like cryptography 101. But 
the core premise is that with public private key cryptography, these two these two numbers have a special relationship with one another. And you can prove that you own a private key associated with a public key without giving away the private key, right? So it's like this way that you can, um, which sounds really weird. You're like, what? Um, so uh, the way that a password works, it's a shared secret between you and the system. So you tell the system what you want your password to be, and then you show up again later and you say, this is my password. And they go, yes, because you know it, it must be you. With a private key, <clears throat> you hold the private key and you never share it with anybody. You tell the entity you want to authenticate to and sort of assert that you are returning as the same entity that was there before. And you say, here's my public key. And they go, okay. And they do some fancy math and they send you a really long number and you need to use your private key to do a, a, a signature on that really long number and send it back to them. And then they, because they can, with all the, the mathematical operations, they can see that you do indeed control the private key associated with that public key, but they have no idea what it is. So it's like this fancy, this, this kind of cloak and dagger with numbers that means you can prove again and again that, yes, you are the entity in control of that private key, so they should believe you're the same person returning. It's just a different way of doing it that doesn't involve doesn't involve a password. I remember using um, email browsers and the like um, and browsers and things in the past where you use private keys, but it was quite a complex process oh it's horrendous so so the the thing that i'm really enthusiastic about this technology although i have you know we're still in the process of building it all out is that i think it's a huge breakthrough in terms of usable public key infrastructure that if we do it right normal human beings will never see these really long numbers and won't interact with them at all but the software we have on our uh, mini computers in our pockets, known as, as smartphones, will be doing all of that for us. And we'll have really fantastic user interfaces with like icons and cards and metaphors that normal humans get. But underneath the surface is this very strong cryptography that we can all take advantage of. And I, presumably that will change our experience of the web itself quite dramatically. Or will it just feel the same but more private? I mean, will we be, um, I suppose, using the one identity for everything or because you're telling No, me no, no. So this is the – so first of all, there is no one identity. The beautiful thing about this is I get to create, um, using this public-private key cryptography, I get to create little um, secret tunnels between me and all my friends that me and my friends own. So one of the things I think we'll see is we'll get to own our own social graph. That's a huge breakthrough. Meaning... Um, we'll have agent software, but our agents like between the four of us on this podcast, we could uh, each create a separate channel using a protocol called DIDCOM, which is for decentralized identifier communication. We could create a tunnel between each of our agents and all four of us could be connected in a social graph, but our us and our agents own that, not the, not the, not the, software programs we're interacting with. So imagine actually having social graph portability to go to new applications and services and not being asked all the time for our address book and all of our phone numbers of everybody. It's just an, it's a nightmare, right? So part of this is about us owning our own social graphs, not the 
services that we're in. And another piece of the puzzle is a is a protocol and a set of tools called verifiable credentials where it's a very um, it's a protocol, a data format with a very wide expressive capacity. So we'll get to see what people create with it. But it's a way for any entity to say something about another entity and cryptographically sign it. So on the one hand, you have governments looking at issuing credentials to their citizens, much like the paper credentials that they issue today. And on the other hand, you have, you know, businesses looking at using it for loyalty points or businesses that sell large consumer goods, being able to create a connection between them and their customers because you can use Digcom to create these new connections. There's all sorts of innovative things that can be done that I think will really open up new possibilities um, for creative ways to connect people with each other and people and things and the businesses that make them. Yeah, this is an incredible shift. Um, how do you see the sort of political economy of this sort of web two to web three shift? Like what, where does this leave the, the big um, search engine companies and telcos and, and, and even governments in this story? Like who, who actually owns and builds this infrastructure or is, is that the very thing that's being disrupted? So governments around the world are funding this. Um, they're really interested because of its security properties and its privacy properties. So Western liberal democracies are pretty clear that they don't actually want to see everywhere their citizens go. So a kind of a phone home type identity system where you have to authenticate to a government service every time is just a no-go for them. Um, and you have, um, you know, Microsoft is backing this technology, IBM, um, in part because neither one of those are Google or Facebook, right? Um, and I think we'll, we're seeing more and more interest from a range of industry. The banking industry is interested in this, not because, quote unquote, people own their own digital representation of themselves, but because it's usable PKI and that's just a lot more secure than like cookies and GIFs looking back at you when you log into your bank. Um, and so we'll see. I, I mean, I'm you also have like there's a program that got disrupted because of COVID, but nonetheless, it was it was um, that um, the known traveler digital identity program that Canada was working on with um, the Netherlands to use verifiable credentials for the entire travel journey between those two countries. So, yeah, we'll, you know, I, I'm... How confident are you that, that this won't be captured or enclosed again um, by, you know, particular companies essentially owning the protocol or controlling the, the bottlenecks? So I think a key thing is... Um, a focus on open standards and interoperability. Open standards are a way to prevent or reduce bottlenecks. Um, but it's always a possibility and there's lots of sort of jockeying going on in different ways. Um, but I think more, you know, people's involvement and really, I think, you know, the community that's working on this technology, some of it has been actively working together for over 15 years. And we've seen a few generations of earlier protocols that had similar aspirational visions, but did get enclosed. So we have some idea about, you know, what that looks like and are actively working to try and prevent it as we evolve the protocols. 
Just jumping in on translation there, you mentioned uh, usable PKI, which is public key infrastructure for anyone listening. Um, who would you say the community working on this technology is, Kalia? What do you mean by who? Um... Uh, so you mentioned that people have been actively working on this for 15 years, but I'm curious yeah. about like where you see the hotspots of that um, thinking and development and then also kind of um, perhaps sharing on some of the yeah. projects that are using the, the this kind of infrastructure. Um, sure. Kind of- so the place – the place that everybody shows up at is a conference called the Internet Identity Workshop. Our next edition is coming up April 20th to 22nd, and it, for the third time it will be virtual. So I know it will involve, if, if you're if you're in Australia, waking up really early to come, but it's maybe less hassle than getting on an airplane to come. Um, and... So that's a key hub of activity. And then there's, you know, two dozen working groups throughout a range of organizations that all end up mingling and connecting at that event. Um, Some of the organizations where active work is going on include the Decentralized Identity Foundation, the Credentials Community Group at the W3C, there's, um, oh my goodness, I've got, <laughs> there's so much going on. Um, I'm actually have a new role as the ecosystems director at the COVID credentials initiative, which is working specifically on applying verifiable credentials to the public health crisis that we're in. You have, um, Folks working on specialized task forces in education and healthcare, um, supply chain work going on, just a really diverse range of of industries where activity is happening. Yeah, there are really incredible links between the kind of um, theoretical understanding of it or the technical architectures, Ellie. Um, asked about and and the real world application especially when it comes to uh, the use of sort of digital tools in response to current crisis as you mentioned um ellie and jason do you have questions off the back of that i suppose the question one of the questions in my mind is what are the limits of this technology so it's clear that it enables me to um have greater privacy when it comes to things such as logging in or um, sharing some information with an entity without having to share everything about myself, such Mm -hmm. as everything that's written on my driver's license or passport. But presumably if it's something like, um, you know, a, a COVID vaccine passport or something like that, there's still a record at some point, um, a health record, which is linking me, to information um, yep. and there's still a need for cybersecurity and privacy by design and the rest in other aspects of digital ethics and behaviour uh, and practices, correct? Yeah. So it doesn't solve everything. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, well, I don't know what everything is. It's, it's, it's a It's an innovation that supports um, a decoupling of what in what used to be called an identity provider from a relying party. They now no longer need to speak to each other for information about me to move from one to the other. I can be the I can be the transmission portal (laughs) and be in control of it. Um, I've I. I'm leading um, a session at RSA this year called Infinitely Scalable Low-Cost Federation. And I think that's a much better frame from an enterprise perspective of what this technology does and why it's interesting. Uh, Can you expand on that a little bit? So right now, um, enterprise federation is hard, expensive, 
involves direct integration between two enterprise systems, right? And verifiable credentials and people's ability to hold hold the information that other parties say about them and share it with who they want. As long as the relying party or in the in the R lingo with decentralized identifiers and verifiable credentials, they're called a verifier, can read that credential and they can f- follow it back to who issued it and sort of decide whether they want to believe that issuer or not. They don't have to technically federate with the issuer. They just have to read the credential. Hmm. Yeah. So, so a project I've been involved with, which is called the Trust Alliance, which is a network of humanitarian organizations, mostly in Australia at this point, mm-hmm. is looking into this. And we've, we've started some pilots uh, using this technology for um, credentials that enable volunteers or workers um, to be able to move between humanitarian organisations without, um, I suppose, there being a central register mm-hmm. of workers, which I think is really important in respect to privacy, but also f- to help combat things like misconduct in that sector. So, you know, you might be able to know that uh, if someone has, a, um, it, it, you know, has, I suppose, worked ethically at one organisation easily before another organisation takes them on, which I think is really interesting and important and, in fact, enables a a degree of um, coordination and collaboration that we can't really achieve yet without this. So I get get the kind of... um, where this this could be quite transformative um, in terms of enabling coordination between entities without needing to compromise people's privacy in in the process. Um, I think there is, I mean, yeah, where the unknowns are for me are in um, as as more and more people take up this technology, and it's so interesting to hear that, you know, Microsoft and and big corporations are taking it on, is the extent to which... um, some forms of coordination might require data sharing or currently rely on data sharing that won't be doing that in the same way anymore. So how other how other processes of information change as a result of this? Um, mm-hmm. I don't think we have, I don't think we can necessarily know that right now. It's, it's just something that's on my mind. Is um, you know you, you build one thing and then it has flow on repercussions in other areas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it sounds as though, you you know, that there are these really important uh, efforts to bring uh, multiple entities together to um, get this off the ground and to operationalize it according to the open standards that you've mentioned and the rest of it. How Mm -hmm. far off do you think it is before we see widespread use? (laughs) Oh, I don't. I mean, I will see. I mean, you've got, sorry, uh, you've got the World Health Organization looking at verifiable credentials as a potential format for vaccine records. Um, in part because of their properties of of not needing to phone home to a, a, a you know a registry managed by a nation state because you don't want everywhere you you like every time you want to prove you're vaccinated to travel you don't want to have to ping the country that you got vaccinated in some central database to prove it right that that sounds like a bad system um so that may be where they're um used first on a wide scale um the good health pass initiative just launched today like i said i've been part of helping lead the covid credentials initiative since april I think there's a lot of interest in higher education. So you have 
the um, digital credentials consortium led by Kim Hamilton Duffy working on higher education implementations. Um, another example from the health and COVID world is IATA has worked with a company called Evernim to sort of, you know, articulate how they would work with airlines and, and doing travel bookings, etc. You have already got um, credit unions in the United States using the technology to issue their members um, what they call a member pass, but basically also a, an, an app that supports them members being able to call their call center and doing their authentication using the app and not doing all those silly KYC questions, know your customer questions where they ask you like what your mortgage payment is and which street you lived on to see if you're really you on the phone. They're just using the app to do it back to like this is a more secure way to connect to your customers than other choices in terms of authentication. And the Silicon Valley Innovation Program has been, ex you know, looking at different use cases, including one that's um, kind of interesting. In the United States, there's 500 or so tribal governments of, um, I don't like this term, but I prefer the term First Nations, but it's not what they use here. It's um, American Indian. So... The, they're looking at how can those nations be empowered to um, manage their own digital identities of their tribal members and have those identities accepted for, say, airline travel. Hmm. Um, you're not gonna <laughs> you're not gonna train TSA agents to recognize 500 tribal government IDs. The only way to do it is with cryptography and sort of signing them digitally and having those be checked. Another use case is they're looking at issuing digital green cards and potentially other um, like visas and stuff. Potentially, um, they're just so it's just there's a lot of there's a lot of promise in the technology and we'll see. Yeah. One thing I've really enjoyed from your work, and it just the thing that it helped me understand was just this idea of seeing credentials as kind of a, um, you know, a data, a universal data format that, that you can just write anything to and yes. having, it, having it break out of. And you know, what's exciting about that um, for credentials is it just massively predicts that we'll just use credentials for more and more things whenever we can think of a, a reason that we need to have a standardized yeah. institutionalized way to package data and send it back and forth credential we can throw them up so this idea of of um and again so i, I want to just check whether i've understood what your argument is 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 that on the credential side this predicts an explosion of the use of credentials and quite mm -hmm. possibly ad hoc and, and and so on and on the identity side and as the other way that I've interpreted this is that you know identities tend to work fairly well in a nation state, you know, assuming governments are reasonably well high functioning, but they work horribly internationally. And this idea of this combination of um, in terms of how does the how is the world different with these technologies is that this dramatically lowers the cost of sort of globalized movement of people or just enables identities to work at a global scale rather than a regional or national scale and it also just massively increases the number and type of credentials that are moving around the world and uh -huh. that's a, that, you know those are two very strong predictions about how the world will be different with these technologies um, uh -huh. it's far more globalized on an identity perspective and far richer and more complex on a credentials perspective uh -huh. that, have, have i understood you correctly on that because that's that's quite profound <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely a possibility um, is that, you know, because this is a data format with a wide expressive capacity, we'll see what people do with it. So there's all the things today that we, you know, have cards or pieces of paper in our wallet for. 
And there's things we don't even imagine yet that could be expressed in that way. I mean, I also worry that we're just going to digitize really messed up systems and impose sort of like mm, credentialing for its own sake. You know, on the other hand, and you've got folks working with um, pretty marginalized populations to try and reduce their burdens, like there's work going on with migrant laborers to try and support them having records of their own training so that next season they don't have to do the full training with a new employer. They can do the booster training because they already got the full training last year and they can prove it. Um, so... As long as we, you know, support a, a range of use cases and really come at it from a human people perspective, I think it could be really helpful. To your point about uh, some of your, I guess, concerns or fears, you uh, co-host your own uh, very good podcast on uh, privacy, surveillance and anonymity. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about, um, you know, like you said, just people applying credentials everywhere or how sort of digital ID approaches, you know, how you hope they are not misapplied, I guess, in relation to, to privacy as well as the sort of architectural principles that you've outlaid? Yeah, I mean, I host that podcast with Seth Goldstein, who um, is the founder of Spartacus, which is a privacy startup that supports people pulling their information down from information brokers and other services. And it's interesting because identity isn't in the title and it, we don't we touch on it, but we're not like we don't obsess about it in the way that I do with <laughs> So the rest of my work is all about identity. And we talk to privacy entrepreneurs and other experts about their work and what they're doing. And yeah, it's a great mix of people that we've had in the show. And I, you know, I don't know how I, I, I don't even know that we've really gone into in depth about what decentralized identity and self-sovereign identity is on that show yet. So that may be that may be a next series of conversations that we start having. You mentioned before um, this concept of uh, of it becoming. Um, out of control that we credentialize everything. Um, mm-hmm. Can you can you paint a picture of that for me? I mean, can I can I just um, ask specifically whether we're heading towards something that's you know the equivalent of user generated content, user generated credentials? Because you know, for thousands of years, credentials have been things that have just been already there as part of the world, and um, you know there's just a relatively small set of them. Um, and I, I can see why this could be an amazing development. But it could also. Be- what do you mean for thousands of years? Oh, well, maybe hundreds of years, but just hundreds uh, of. Thank you, because I do not like it when people like. I was at one event, and this guy who worked for the UN was like, "States have always issued identities to people." I'm like, back up. <laughs> We've only been issuing passports for 100 years, so we think of them as always because everyone we know, it's been true in their lifetime. But it was certainly not true in in the lifetime of my great-grandparents, right? And so, and states... And yeah, states, I, I was university credentials from the medieval university. Oh, that's true. Okay, so we, you are correct. I am. They, that is true. Uh, um, and I think that, um, you know, I just read a book called um, "The Weirdest People in the World." Oh yeah, that's fantastic. It's a fantastic book, and I actually, it's. You know, part of what happened in Europe was the, the the thesis of the book is that starting at about 500, the Catholic Church systemically broke down kin-based institutions in Europe. And a thousand years later, people had very small families. 
started moving around and basically started using credentials as a way to figure out who each other was because there was no, these kin-based institutions that formally sort of defined who you were and where you fit, they weren't big enough to do all that. And so you had the emergence of new institutions like universities and independent cities and guilds, etc. So I think in some ways we also need to remember that the ways that Western people think about credentials and credentialing is coming from this weird place and that maybe the rest of the world isn't where we're at with it. Um, but that does raise a super interesting point that, that credentials are valuable precisely when the world gets big or when you have to move beyond right. the, the, a mass, a mass society. And it's, and it's why we have nation state issued identity credentials and birth certificates is because we live in, we live in a mass society and you, you, it's, it's a, it's a tool to function in that type of, in that type of world. And now, you know, as you were saying, we, those systems kind of work well in a, in, at the scale of a nation state, but they start to break down when you go international and more and more people are, are becoming international people. Um, and even like, very poor migrant laborers are getting on airplanes and going and working in foreign countries, right? This isn't just elite rich people. Um, but I also worry, I think we need to really consider how, you know, what is the impact going to be? How are we really creating pathways for people to have good lives, like so much of it is coming from a kind of capitalist economy space. And maybe there's other ways to imagine how credentials and what we're working on can be used to actually dream and build something else. Um, You know, I'm also interested in, this is a kind of, not totally far out use case, but it, you know, it's it's on the edge of of thinking is looking at you know indigenous communities documenting their own um, members of their own communities and mapping their own land, right? So you've got tools like Mapeo that are being used by indigenous communities to map their land. Could a similar set of tools be developed that's really grassroots that supports them saying, and these are our people connected to this land. In Southeast Asia, 30% of folks are still indigenous. Mm. And how do we reimagine, not so much reimagine, but that these tools aren't just about existing nation states stamping themselves on everybody and instead being like, how do we honor the relationship that indigenous people who still exist and are still in relationship to the land in a way that, you know, I and my ancestors have not been for several hundred years, that that's respected and helped by this technology potentially, right? Like we have to, like, there's more than one world that's possible with these tools. And I think we have to not just get, not, not only think about the kind of default. It's interesting that you raised the indigeneity example. It's a, been a long-standing controversy in Australia around whether you can have a, a, a proof of indigeneity. Um, and I think the, the answer is, is, is definitely not one that's state-issued. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, in fact, it could only really be done through kind of peer uh confirmation and um you know th- through through kin and community yeah. and 
and in a very networked way. Yeah. Um, and we, we are constantly coming up against this in Australia because you're always being asked, are you Indigenous, are you non-Indigenous? You know, there's always attacks on people for claiming to be Indigenous when they're not or vice versa. And um, yeah. ultimately it comes back to whether you belong, right, and whether that yeah. community accepts you. And, you know, there's work going on by Kay Marie Dunn in New Zealand working with this technology where they're, you know, working with the crown to have kind of um, Maori, um, I think their tribal groups are called iwis, that yeah. they're, they, that those existing systems of tracing their lineage are being digitized and documented and that they can, you know, the, the vision is that they can use SSI technologies to have a credential that's coming from their own systems, not from the crown defining who they are. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, in some respects, the, um, the, the organizations that deal with land rights in Australia, their role has been documenting networks of kinship for a long time. Um, so, so those records in some respects going back through, um, you know, at least 50 years are often there. But it's, it's also, um, you know, there, there's a whole history of dispossession and uh -huh. um, stolen children and the like that complicate matters. Um, so I, I like the idea of, of technologies that can be adaptable to people's needs. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think one of those? Yeah, I think, I think, you know, as I said, this is a data format with wide expressive capacity. And now it's up to us mm -hmm. to go and make, you know, express. It's fascinating that you, you emphasize that because I think, um, one of the traps here is to sort of see these technologies as just supporting a digital internet economy or a digital internet society rather than seeing it as a set of technologies just to make a human world work better um, as a fundamental um, in terms of the way the advance occurs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, in a kind of more self-governance way, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, can we ask you about, I mean, this is a blockchain podcast, so we should come at some point to, Good, to yes. blockchain. This is what I was thinking too. What, <laughs> what do you see as the connection between, because, um, you know, you, you've been involved in this space um, well before there are even blockchains on Earth, um, and whether this is a, a natural fit that the, that's, you know, blockchain technology is a decentralized, distributed, digital right. technology system fit with this or whether it takes it in different directions or how do you see the relationship so so self-sovereign identity uses blockchains as like an extra bonus sprinkle on the top um because what is needed is that issuers of credentials who generate their own public-private keys and their own decentralized identifiers and did documents that record those public keys, they need a place to put them that anyone in the world can look them up if they need to, to verify the signatures on credentials that people are presenting that they signed, right? So if you're going to have self-generated numbers as your anchors for these credentials, you need to put them somewhere. And it turns out blockchain's a handy place to, to stick them. Why not? There are other places you could put those key pairs. In fact, there's a, a method called well-known where you put the decentralized identifier and the place to find the did doc in the IANA registry of the in a in a in a section of the IANA registry where you register domain names, right? Uh, or it's not the IANA registry. It's, it's, it's in your DNS record and, and the method is being submitted into like IANA as, as a kind of standardized way to do it. Um, you could just put them on your own website. The question is if your website goes down, 
where do you find the keys? So part of it is about the the idea that these networks will be persistent long after the entities that issue the credentials might have disappeared, but you can still go look up the keys. Yeah, I like that argument. So blockchains is safe places to put your large numbers. Okay. Pretty much. That's it. <laughs> That's a huge case. Yeah. That's kind of a nice evolution of like... Um key servers as well I guess right what um, what ways do you see different blockchain projects you've come across approaching identity perhaps in a way that you would agree with or maybe disagree with in their own projects I think one really common well I don't know if it's common but most blockchain-y people don't really understand identity, don't think about it, and they're like, oh, people are just going to use their public keys or the hash of their public keys as their identifier. And the number of times I hear people like, oh, the whole world would be fine as long as everybody in the world gets an identifier on my blockchain. It's ridiculous. Um. One, there is no one global namespace. Two, our identities, this is why verifier book credentials are cool. They're multifaceted and complex and have a richness to them that can never be conveyed by sort of like having one one number. Um, and yeah, so I I mean, that's that's a kind of, problem that I see often yeah it's really nice to start to kind of explain that and, and dig into some of uh, the potential approaches as we have done um, Jason you're currently working on the national blockchain roadmap uh, around credentials what are some of the problems that you're trying to approach uh, or solve there yeah, so I think the, the thing that we're, we're seeing is, is of, of most interest here is just the evolution of um, credentials as a, as a new technology or a new industry and having them sort of break out of the things that universities give you or fairly standardized units that sometimes function at some parts of the labor market to being just a far more general, usable um, technology just to facilitate um, people moving around society and wanting to prove expertise or knowledge or claims or just stuff to other people um, that they've never met before, possibly in other countries. So just, I mean, I think that that notion of this is an enabling technology for a bigger digital world is, is the mm -hmm. that's really struck us as, as the, the thing that's changed. And I really liked the, um, the, the way in which you connected blockchain to that. It's just, it's just a, it's a, a layer that just sits in there that just enables you to just verify stuff. Um, mm -hmm. it, it supports this technology. Well, I think, too, one of the things that's important to remember that the verify and verifiable tech, verifiable credentials is about cryptography. It has nothing to do with whether your name is John Smith or Susie Q or whatever. That is also a problem that needs to be solved in these infrastructures, but that comes from what's called governance or trust frameworks that different issuers belong to that articulate their policies and practices around credential issuance. And, you know, if they are part of a governance framework, like, for example, the provinces within the country of Canada have been working on a pan-Canadian trust framework so they can believe each other's credentials then you can believe that that is Suzy Q or John Smith because it comes from an entity that has agreed to certain business practices that means they're probably not issuing people fake credentials. Same is true with higher education institutions and their issuance. They already have accreditation structures and they need to layer in these digital things on top of them. And the verifiability is about the cryptography used to verify the statements in the verifiable credentials, not their veracity, which is a different problem.
That's such an excellent yeah, one point. Of the that we're seeing with that is just the implication of not having that is that you end up just trusting things that you've heard of, or you know, yeah. um, that you end up with sort of anything that is huge and, and well known, um, you know, just a well known brand name becomes a, a proxy for something that can issue credentials, and that's that's kind of the opposite of the direction you want to go. Mm-hmm. I was going to jump in and say we have an excellent uh, podcast that we've just recorded on um, constitution, constitutions and constitutional design in, in um, the digital space as well. So that's um, a nice segue there to the point of governance. Uh, but I'm aware of time, so I will just ask if there's any uh, final comments or uh, you've mentioned an incredible number of uh, conferences and workshops and events that you're involved in, which I'll put in the show notes as well. I just have one, uh, Kelsey, which is we've talked about people in, in this podcast, uh, but digital identity is often discussed in, in relation to objects and things. Mm-hmm. Is that thing that you see will be increasingly important or is it a separate problem? Oh, it's it's definitely connected. So there's a whole IoT group forming in the decentralized identity I think it's in DIFF or is it in the Trust Over IP Foundation? I don't know. There's so many groups. So there's definitely work around IoT and particularly because of the self-certifying nature of of these identifiers. And there's a whole bunch of work going on in supply chain. Um, That's, you know, the U.S. government um, is interested in this technology because it could streamline customs and reduce all the paperwork that comes with you know, pallets and steel and um, oil even. So it's a, it's a, has a lot of potential to reduce supply chain paperwork. Yeah, but probably not as complex as everything else we've been talking about. Well, I mean, that's the thing is steel doesn't need privacy in the same way um, that people do. Not yet. When the robots arrive, it might be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's where my mind went was to um, automated agents. And on that note, I'll wrap us up. So thank you so much to Kalia, uh, Jason and Ellie for joining us for this episode of Mintenburn. And you can check out the show notes and get in touch if you have any ideas or feedback at rmitblockchain.io. Thanks so much for having me. And um, I'm happy to hear from any of your listeners if they want to get more connected to our work. Thanks, Kalia. Bye.